Thank you. All right, it's going to take me a second to get my big, my big ideas two podium rig set up. Uh, I guess maybe I'll, as I'm doing this, maybe I can multitask. I don't know. Um, I'll start with a question. Those of you that are maybe somewhat familiar or even very familiar with uh, church history, and you can see I'm having a very hard time multitasking. Like I stop every with every keystroke, I stop. My brain stops. Um, who would you say, or what, what, what names come to mind, if I were to ask you, who are some of the bright lights, brightest lights of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th, 17th century? What are some names? Top of mind, quick. Zwingli. Zwingli? Martin Luther? Calvin. Calvin. Okay, stop there. Look at that. You guys, like, read my notes. That's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Now, uh, we, I alluded to this a few weeks ago. Of course... Um, these bright lights are obvious. We'll be looking at them as we get closer to and into a study of the history of the Reformation. But there are um, other lights that we've started to kind of look at that had some influence or effect on the uh, impetus, some of the motivating factors, some of the doctrinal treatises that were written that led to convictions and conclusions uh, of the Reformers. Um, now, Probably the greatest influence of the reformer is who? Who would you guess? No? Influence of the reformers. Go way back in time. Go back a thousand years or more. Okay, now, I have a question for you. And let me see if I can find this. You guys are going to have to indulge me because this is going to be an introduction. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here. But we just heard the mention of... The name, what did you say again, Charlie? Augustine. Did you say Augustine <laughs> or Augustine? I thought he said Augustine. What did he say? Somebody, somebody call him out. Augustine. You said Augustine, okay. Now, hang on a second. I, I need you to indulge me for just a second here. Um, we need to, before we even begin to talk about Augustine, Augustine, we need to probably determine how to pronounce his name. So there was an actual article written on this very debate. And the thing that's so great about this article, it was written for the uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society, by David Horner of Talbot Department of Philosophy, Biola University. And he wrote this in the form of an actual journal article, like an academic journal article. But it was all about the debate over how to pronounce his name, right? Was this for his PhD or what? <laughs> it's, I think, it, I mean, you're going to probably pick up on him using the medium of academic journal writing with uh, uh, no small hints of sarcasm and wit. So if you guys will just indulge me for a minute, this is just a, a few pages, but I hope you'll enjoy. And we're, and we're going to conclude how we're going to pronounce his name. All right? So he first starts by giving um, objections. 
um, on, on that he's going to answer. So objection number one. It would seem that it should be, it should be pronounced Augustine. Augustine. He's got the pr- phonetic pronunciation. Uh, for as the philosopher Gary DeWeese says, we do not say Augustine, we say August for the month. Strong argument, right? So first objection to pronouncing it Augustine is that we don't say August, the month, we say August. So of course it's Augustine, right Charlie? Right? Okay, objection number two. Further, the people in Florida call their city St. Augustine, and they should know. All right? Objection number three. Further, the prophet, Bob Dylan, (laughs) pronounces it St. Augustine, and he should know. Objection number four. Further, according to the philosopher, those who pronounce it Augustine are effete, pretentious, Anglophiliacs, okay? So, too proud of your Anglo-Saxon roots, right? On the contrary, and here's where he goes into his argument. On the contrary, the Oxford Encyclopedic English Dictionary gives a single recommended pronunciation, Augustine. So, here we go. I answer that. We must distinguish between necessary and fitting pronunciations. In some cases, grammatical rules dictate the proper pronunciation of a word. In other cases, differing pronunciations may be equally permissible, strictly speaking, while one pronunciation is more fitting. The latter obtains concerning the pronunciation of Augustine, Augustine's name. Both Augustine and Augustine are permissible pronunciations, but Augustine is more fitting. So here's his argument. It's about to come on strong. The reasons are clear, he says. First, concerning the permissibility of either pronunciation, it must be noted that in both cases, one is dealing with an English derivation of a Latin name. Properly speaking, Augustine's name is Aurelius Augustinus. Because it is a Latin name, the proper pronunciation is clear. Augustinus. Some among the ignorant have claimed that Augustine or Augustine is obviously correct because it corresponds to the Latin name. This guy's just going on. But this is manifestly false. It is true that it shares the long vowel sound in the third syllable, but this is merely a per accidens similarity. He uses Latin. I don't even know what that means. The per se distinction between the two pronunciations concerns not how the various vowels are to be pronounced, but rather which syllable is to be accented. As is clear from the philosopher's own argument in objection number one. Now, it should be obvious that having only three syllables, neither disputed English pronunciation follows the Latin accent vis-a-vis on the fourth syllable. And that, therefore, neither option can be said to correspond to the Latin name in any strict sense. In sum... This dispute concerns an anglicized word that does not either does not does not in either pronunciation strictly follow the determinative Latin accent of its root. Now, stay with me. I know you're going. This is tedious. Stay with me. This is going to get good. Um, 
As there, is no figuring, uh, as there is no further English pronunciation rules to determine the question, we must say that both pronunciations fall into the category of grammatical permission rather than obligation. Hence, the Dictionary of Cultural Literacy lists both as recognized pronunciations. Second, however, while consideration of the Latin original of Augustine's name does not determine a single grammatically obligatory English pronunciation, it does suggest that Augustine is the more fitting or appropriate pronunciation. This is because the latter most closely preserves the distinctive placement of the accent in the original. As we have seen, Augustine's Latin name is properly pronounced Augustinus, with the accent on the pentultimate syllable. Look that up. The pronunciation of Augustine preserves that pattern. When the final syllable is dropped from the Latin name in forming the anglicized name, Augustine retains the accent on the penult rather than wrenchingly shifting it to the antepenult, as in the case of Augustine. He's serious about this. In this way, Augustine is closer to the original pronunciation pattern, and it thus constitutes a more natural and appropriate pronunciation. For this reason, the Oxford English Encyclopedic English Dictionary, excuse me, the Oxford Encyclopedic English Dictionary, I can't even pronounce that, recognized universally as authoritative in things most fine and fitting, <laughs> lists Augustine as the single recommended pronunciation. Now, it should be remembered that the issue here is one of grammar and not one of eternal happiness. It is possible for one to be mistaken in this matter and still lead a flourishing, albeit less perfectly flourishing, life. <laughs> Unfortunately, some demand slavish conformity to Augustine as if it were obligatory and thus tie up heavy loads and put them upon men's shoulders, Matthew 23, 4. By contrast, we should seek the more excellent way, 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one, and of pronunciation uh, 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 are yet... To, able to welcome into the, our midst those who choose the other path, while of course not affirming their choice as equally appropriate. So we can accept you, those of you that say Augustine, but just recognize that it's not fitting. <laughs> Indeed, some of those who persist in and even insist upon pronouncing Augustine's name as Augustine are our friends. Yet, the other philosopher, Aristotle, has said, For though we love both the truth and our friends, reverence is due the truth first. <laughs> to the objections, and this is where it gets good and we're about to wrap up. The first objection. This is an irrelevant and specious objection. The reason we do not say August, but August is, of course, that August is a two-syllable word, and so the accent properly falls on the penult. But what is at issue in the dispute is the pronunciation of a three-syllable word. Indeed, we are to believe, indeed, are we to believe that following the logic of this objection, the philosopher would speak of Augustus, as in Caesar, as Augustus, rather than Augustus. Objection number two, he answers. It is unreasonable to appeal in such important matters to the authority of people who cannot even figure out how to vote, namely Florida, pronouncing St. Augustine. <laughs> and then objection number three, the prophet, Bob Dylan, has strong prima facie authority in most matters. However, St. Augustine and Latin pronunciation are not within the prophet's area of specific expertise. As in, for example, like playing the harmonica. 
And then objection number four, we are deeply hurt by the ad hominem charge that people who pronounce the Augustine, who pronounce it Augustine, are effete, pretentious anglophiliacs. Seeking always to embody the spirit of magnanimity, we ourselves would not stoop to the level of such slander, invective, and personal attacks in dealing with the kind of low-class, know-nothing jerks that would say things like this. In sum, it has been wisely said, in Florida, it's Augustine, but in heaven, it's Augustine. And we should certainly not confuse the two places. The end. Thank you for indulging me. I know that was long, but I, I could not resist reading that because I, I was like, okay, I'm about to start talking about Augustine. And I've heard, like, I, you know, John Piper has done, done a great biographical sketch that I am relying heavily on for some of this content. And he pronounced it Augustine. And I've heard others pronounce it Augustine. And I'm like, I got I to gotta pick one. So I actually did a Google search and I found this article. And I'm so thankful now. I feel like I'm speaking with authority. It is Augustine for our purposes here. Now, getting that out of the way, and again, I told you this is introductory material, so don't worry, we are going to get to some serious material over the course of the next few weeks. You've got you to remember where we are in this period of church history. We're at a period of time where uh, there is a dramatic shift in civilization. You remember this period of time where, again, just giving you that, this reference point, this date reference point, in, in 410 A.D., that is when, again, another pronunciation thing, I've heard it pronounced two ways, Alaric or, Alar- or Alaric, the German uh, invader and his armies, sacked Rome. So the fall of Rome, the eternal city, was this sort of this emblematic representation in history of a dramatic cultural, civilization kind of shift. It had far-reaching impact. And over the next, uh, even though there would be an emperor, or a a Roman emperor in place for the next roughly 60 years, the fall and demise of the Roman Empire was well underway. And that obviously led to a tremendous shift in how people existed and lived and functioned across a vast swath of the world. And, and things deteriorated into warlord, warlords and factions, and you had decays of all the, the sort of the technology of the day, aqueducts and the things that provided for people's well-being, and, and people had, no longer existed in cities, but they had subsistence kinds of livings in remote areas and smaller clans. I mean, the whole of, of civilization changed for a long period of time after this event. And this is the period of time... And, and really on the cusp of this is when Augustine is living and serving as bishop in Hippo, which is in Africa, in modern-day Algeria, um, and writing prolifically. We talked about these bright lights of the Reformation, and you immediately mentioned Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Well, let me read you a few little excerpts about Augustine's influence on, on these particular well-known influential um, reformers from the Protestant Reformation. The wide dissemination of the scriptures and the church fathers, the writings of the church fathers, due to the extraordinary success of the printing press, was a powerful contributor to the religious renewal of the 16th century. Remarkable among these church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, 8354 to 8430, has been regarded as the most consequential patristic source of the Reformation. 
Luther buried himself in Augustine's writings while at the monastery. And by the way, Luther was an Augustinian monk. He buried himself in Augustine's writings while at the monastery and became thoroughly acquainted with his work. Augustine's theology was held in great esteem by Luther and promoted widely while he was at Wittenberg. Luther even appealed to Augustine as a leading proponent of church reform. Calvin, the theology of Augustine greatly impacted Calvin. Constant study of Augustine's writings allowed Calvin to liberally quote him. Calvin actually quotes Augustine more than any other theologian, more than any other church father in his works. Um, so he, he quoted uh, Augustine um, liberally. Openly, he openly appropriated his expressions and studiously used him for support during controversies. Zwingli diligently studied the church fathers before going to Zurich, especially Augustine, Cyril of Alexandria, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Jerome, and Origen. Once arriving in Zurich, Zwingli elevated Augustine to a preeminent position among the fathers in his theological development. Gradually, Zwingli progressed to a theocentric understanding of Augustine with the doctrine of grace as central. So you have these three major bright lights of the Reformation that our minds can quickly and readily go to as having this great influence even on us today and how we understand doctrine and theology and the church and, and all these other things that are so important to us. But it was Augustine who was sort of foremost of an influence in their minds and shaping their understanding of key doctrines and key truths from Scripture. John Piper says this, from this platform in, in Hippo in North Africa, and through his remarkable faithfulness in formulating and defending the Christian faith for his generation, Augustine shaped the history of the Christian church. His influence in the Western world is simply staggering. Adolf Harnack said that he was the greatest man the church has possessed between Paul the Apostle and Luther the Reformer. Now, Harnack was a German, so he had to put Luther in there as being influential. Benjamin Warfield argued that through his writings, Augustine entered, quote, this is a quote from Warfield, entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force and not merely created an epoch in the history of the church, but determined the course of its history in the West up to the present day. He had, quote, a literary talent second to none in the annals of the church, end quote. Again, Warfield the whole development of Western life in all its phases was powerfully affected by his teaching. End quote. The publishers of Christian History Magazine simply say, quote, After Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. Now, I'm not here to say that all those statements are categorically accurate. I would not even say that I have a grasp of all the various influential people throughout church history that would warrant such a conclusion. And in fact, I might go to other uh, key figures in the scriptures before I might you know, go to that length. Nevertheless, it's inarguable that this man, Augustine of Hippo, was substantially influential and still remains influential today uh, in all of his writings and the influence of his understanding of, of scripture and understanding of salvation and, and other things. Now, as I said in the past, uh, in some of these different people that we've looked at, um, this, is not, this is not this comprehensive affirmation of everything Augustine wrote or believed. In fact, there is some very hard-to-resolve conflict in, uh, in Augustine's theology. And I am not a master of Augustine, so I'm not going to be able to speak to it uh, comprehensively in any way. But uh, while Augustine, and we're going to talk very extensively about this, while Augustine 
was prolific in the area of writing about sovereign grace, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men. He was also a strong advocate for the sacraments. His understanding of the church was very Roman Catholic in its orientation. He had had an an understanding and wrote a little bit about baptismal regeneration in a way that is very difficult to hold it side by side with his writings on sovereign grace in the salvation of men. So, Again, every, every one of these people that we talk about, you have to kind of make sure you don't, you don't hear me saying that go read everything that Augustine has written and you can count on it and bank on it being thoroughly biblical and properly exegeted from Scripture. That's not the case. However, what he did write on that is clearly biblical and, and, and that we're all going to speak to and the influence that it had is substantial and is significant. And the amount that he wrote was enormous. In fact... One, uh, one historian and student of Augustine's work, I mean a legitimate historian and a legitimate student and a legitimate expert on Augustine's work, I can't remember his name, and I'm not going to get this sort of this illustration correctly, but he, he made this statement, uh, and I don't have the quote, but he made this statement that, that um, his, his pursuit and study of Augustine's writings is like someone who's seeking to write a guidebook on the Swiss Alps. And he said, I can go into a room and study one book of Augustine's Confessions, which is made up of 17 books or something. It's it's long. It's over 500 pages. I can read one of the books in his significant work of his Confessions, really his biography up to the point of of age 31, and I can come out of that and not feel like I, I I, I can't even scratch the surface of all that I need to know and understand before I can begin to write effectively on you know, this guidebook of the Alps. And he, and he uses that analogy to draw out this, this, the Alps of Augustine's writing. I mean, it's just it's so vast. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning when I read that quote. Um, uh, Benjamin Kohler was recently in Tyrol. He was skiing in the Alps, right? And if you follow him on Instagram, he had some video of his up, up on top of the mountain on the slopes in, in, in uh, Austria, right? Yes, the, the Australian Alps. And one of the things he says on that video, and I'm not going to quote him, but he's, he's kind of showing it around. He goes, every time I come up here, he goes, I, I, I look in a different direction and I'm just overwhelmed. It's like this doesn't at all capture what I'm seeing. I mean, he just kind of was, you could tell he was just kind of overwhelmed at the grandeur and the spectacle and the expanse and the beauty of his enviable position of being atop a mountain in the Australian Alps skiing, which, by the way, just doesn't seem right. We need to talk about that. Um, He's supposed to be studying, isn't he? He's supposed to be studying genetics in Germany. What is going on? Okay. So, so, but it just struck me that that, that there he is literally – you know, giving sort of credence to this historian's, you know, uh, illustration that, the, you know, it's like trying to take in the Alps. Um, it's just overwhelming. So <clears throat> a little bit of biographical information. Again, I'm skimming the surface here, and, and we're going to, like I said, we're, I, don't, I don't know exactly how far I'm going to get even with the material I have today. And just kind of hang in there with me because um, th- there's, there's some, I think that there is some, um, some content in, in, Augustine's writing and the ways that he um, came to understand, the ways that he really reflected upon the doctrine of salvation, um, the ways that he really carefully 
scripturally and through his own really tormenting kind of experience from darkness to light, uh, the way that he really churned through that and then wrote about it is profound in nature. Um, and so I think that it's going to hopefully be very insightful and encouraging for us to, and really challenging us to, to, uh, to really, um, really pursue a, a genuine, fervent love of Christ as our Savior. So Augustine, he was born in an area near Hippo, which is now uh, modern-day Algeria, on November 13, 354. Again, I'm just going to skim the surface, a little bit, a few highlights. His father was a middle-income farmer. His father was not a believer early on in his, in his life, in Augustine's life, uh, but he worked hard to make sure that Augustine had a really strong education, uh, got him in, into school and where he studied rhetoric uh, in Madaura. This was about 20 miles away from where he lived. And then from age 11 to 15, uh, that was from age 11 to 15. Then after that, he spent a year at home, and then he went off to Carthage from the age of 17 to the age of 20, where he studied rhetoric and other things, philosophy and other things. Um, Before he left for Carthage, his mom was devout. His mom was committed to praying for the salvation of her son, fervent in prayer. In fact, you read in the Confessions a lot about August, uh, Augustine, almost, I almost did it. I almost said Augustine. Uh, you read a lot about Augustine's mom. He writes a lot about his mom and how, how faithful she was to pray for him and his salvation, his soul, and how powerful that was. And also, uh, he, he uses that uh, experience and that recognition in forming his understanding of how God actually brings someone from death to life, from darkness to light. But his mom... Uh, He says himself, before he went to uh, Carthage to study for three years, his mother warned him earnestly, quote, not to commit fornication and above all to seduce another man's wife. So this was already, there was already this indication, uh, understanding of his mom to warn him against the passions of the flesh. And this proves to be a phenomenally challenging weak spot for Augustine in his life. Augustine says this, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. So just think about this. You have this man that goes to a particular city, and it's not as though Carthage was necessarily that different than any other major city he might go to, right? He's really just confessing that his experience in this city, it's as though his own carnal fleshly desires just came unleashed, in this new place, in this new you know, place of greater opportunity to have that, that, those desires go unfettered. He says, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. I was willing to steal, and steal I did, although I was not compelled by any lack. I was at the top of the school of rhetoric. I was pleased with my superior status and swollen with conceit. It was my ambition to be a good speaker for the unhallowed and inane purpose of gratifying human vanity. Just a window into where he was when he went to Carthage. He was driven by carnal passions, and he was driven by vain conceit. And he was smart, and he was accomplished in both areas. So that's where he was at this period of time in his life. He took a concubine in Carthage. He lived with this woman for 15 years. He bore a son with this woman. Um, But he pursued carnal pleasure as a major struggling point for him 
in his journey from, from uh, being unconverted to being converted. Through this period of time, he studied, he, he became very interested in, in Plato and Platonic philosophy. And, and he, through this process and looking back after his conversion, here's how I love how he, he sort of uh, articulates this. And this gives, you, this gives you a little glimpse into where his heart and his mind eventually goes as, as the Savior and, and gives him light to see. Okay, As he goes from this place of seeing things through a dark lens to seeing three things through the light of salvation. And here's how he, what he says about his fascination with Platonic philosophy. He says, I had my back, now listen to this, I had my back to the light and my face was turned towards the things which it illuminated so that my eyes by which I saw the things which stood in the light were themselves in darkness. It gives you a little insight as to how he's beginning to understand what was going on. So here he is, fascinated intellectually. He's stimulated philosophically by Platonic philosophy. And he is mistaking that for light. It's not light at all. In fact, he's staring really at darkness. And there's light behind him that's sort of shining on it. In other words, there is common grace even in the wisdom and intellect that God grants unredeemed, pagan, godless men to display. That's part of God's common grace. It's part of the Imago Dei, right? I mean, this is, and that's kind of what he's articulating here. Another little insight here, this is much more lengthy because this is much more uh, endemic or uh, descriptive of his struggle. Uh, on the heart of his battle with lust and with immorality, and ultimately leading to his conversion. He says this, O Lord, this is in his confessions, O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery to the things of this world. There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me to sanity. Excuse me, I was beside myself with madness that would bring me to sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I was held back by mere trifles. They plucked at my garments of flesh and whispered, Are you going to dismiss us? So he's speaking of his, his really addiction to carnal pleasure. He says, Are you going to dismiss us? They're, they're pulling at him. From this moment, we shall never be with you again forever and ever. And while I stood trembling at the barrier... On the other side, I could see the chaste beauty of continence in all her serene, unsullied joy as she modestly beckoned me to cross over and to hesitate, hesitate no more. She stretched out loving hands to welcome and embrace me. He says, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. 
Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed from my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage with my, uh, upon which my eyes should fall. Now, I don't recommend that as a way of doing Bible study, necessarily, but this is, this is the testimony that he gives. He says, um, So I hurried back to the place where Olypius, his friend who he was with previously, was sitting. I seized the book of Paul, Paul's epistles and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. Romans 13, 13 through 14. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of that sentence... It was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. So that's sort of his testimony of his conversion with this passage of Scripture. Now, this is very insightful when we, when we kind of get, continue on to understand how Augustine really illuminates further on... He begins to really reflect on this whole experience. Like, what, what was going on? I, I, I was battling and laboring under this weight. In other words, his conscience was bearing down on him. Clearly, he did not see the the long-term benefits or the commendation of happiness in life. He saw saw these these pursuit of pleasure for the temporary nature that it was. So he was in this place of really soul torment while he was pursuing what he felt was satisfying for the moment but still tormented in the process of the whole thing. And then in what he sees as an instant, those passions that held grip on him, that would call him and beckon to him and pull him back, in a moment were completely released. You remember way back when, when we were studying through the first 30 years of church history and we did that survey of Acts, and I made this statement. Everyone who truly comes to genuine faith in Christ is saved like the Apostle Paul was saved. When you read the account of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, yes, we may not be riding a horse to Damascus, and yes, we may not visibly see a blinding light and literally physically go blind, and yes, we may not hear an audible voice from heaven calling out to us saying, why are you persecuting me? That may not be the experience that we have, but the kind of experience that takes you from a place of complete blindness and thinking you're right, about everything, to all of a sudden being completely exposed, completely laid bare before a holy God, and coming to grips with that reality, and then falling before Him in dust and ashes and saying, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And unless you come to that place, that, that, is not, that is not a testimony of genuine salvation. Everyone is saved in that way. You cannot say and, and, and endorse the, 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 all the passages of Scripture that describe salvation as something as radical and comprehensive as being dead and then being brought to life in simple, shallow terms like checking a box. That is not congruent with the nature of salvation, the doctrine of salvation that is clearly articulated in Scripture. Scripture. 
So Augustine is just acknowledging and stating this same principle. he, He was overwhelmed by this reality. The thing that I knew I I, I knew somehow I needed and I longed for was overcome by these other carnal desires that kept me in bondage. And then in an instant, all of a sudden, from way behind all of that, and he's going to talk about that further, from way behind all of that, everything changed. So you think about the Apostle Paul, what does he do? He leaves that place and he goes and he begins to study Christ. Remember, he studies Christ for three years, but the course and trajectory of his life is completely altered. Completely altered. Not with perfection, not with perfect obedience, but the trajectory of your life is completely altered. And and Augustine is going to give us great theological insight into what's really transpiring as a result of that, what's really going on. So I'm getting all worked up and passionate about this. so the, the way that I would characterize, not the way I would characterize it, that's crazy. Why would I even say that? Just delete that from the tape. That's so silly. The way that Augustine characterizes this experience is it's the experience of sovereign joy. That's his phrase. Now you find John Piper picking up on that. And really, Augustine, along with Jonathan Edwards, who was very much influenced by Augustine, and some C.S. Lewis and others, really had a great influence on John Piper in his whole sort of way to articulate this in the, in the, in the term Christian hedonism. Anybody ever read John Piper and his, his ideas about, about Christian hedonism, about pursuing your passions in Christ? Like the, like the, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, Augustine, Augustine's behind Piper's sort of understanding of all these ways to understand our pursuit of knowing Christ and loving Christ. So, he, like I said, he, he, he identifies this as sovereign joy. Uh, here's what Piper says about this. Far too much Christian thinking and preaching in our day, including Reformed thinking and preaching, has not penetrated to the root of how grace actually triumphs, namely through joy, and therefore is only half Augustinian and half biblical and half beautiful. So, what Augustine, the journey that Augustine's going to take us on is this, uh, is this journey toward incomparable, hard to put into words, sovereign, God-ordained, God-wrought, God-given, behind every other desire, joy in him. That's the essence of conversion and salvation. So the heart of Augustine's thought and essence of Augustine's thought, listen to this. Here's Augustine. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? So everybody would say, you're talking about sovereign joy. You're talking about a work solely of God. What about man's free will? And he begins to articulate, let me just describe to you this idea of free will as I I experienced it and as every man really experiences it. What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true 
the sovereign joy. There's a key phrase, and that's the key phrase in this, for this idea of Augustinian thought. You drove them, he says, from me and took their place. So this is key in understanding genuine salvation and understanding genuine joy in Christ and in understanding this, this insight from Augustine. It's joy in God. Like he is the object. He is the end. He is the, both the source and the object of our affections and our joy and our satisfaction and our happiness. And he is the one who replaces carnal passions and carnal joys with a desire and a heart to love him and to find in him the end of all things, namely our happiness and our joy and our true satisfaction. That's where he's going with all this. He says, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Here's what Piper says about this little quote. He says, this is Augustine's understanding of grace. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. That's the point. That's how the trajectory of someone's life is radically changed. It's not radically changed because all of a sudden you see the, the... the philosophical cogency of the Christian worldview, and you begin to sort of, by your own willpower, operate your life according to it. And that implies certain moral you know, dispositions and practices and you know, a, a social dynamics and church attendance and these kinds of things. No, what he's saying is, is that God, our, it's sovereign joy in God that triumphs over our joy in sin. This is why, for the true believer we clearly find our own sin so detestable and have to constantly preach the gospel of salvation to ourselves just so that we don't find ourselves in a dark hole of depression. The closer you and I walk with God, the closer we get to knowing and understand His heart and His mind and what He has done for us, the more we are wretched over our own sin. And the more we are wretched over our own sin, if we stay in that place and we begin to think that somehow my willpower has to overcome this so I can get back and be close to God, we end up backsliding even further. However, we become wretched by our own sin the closer we get to God and understanding His holiness and tasting of the joy that He provides for us in salvation we find ourselves struggling with sin again, what do we do? We have to preach the gospel of salvation to ourselves. We have to preach that there's nothing you can do here. This is all of grace and all of God. Abandon yourself to Him and Him alone. So this is, I'm, I'm, this is the, the, the refrain that you'll hear from Augustine over and over again. A few more quick things. I'm, I'm totally out of time. but Continuing on with, uh, with Piper's statement about this. He said, um, he said it's, it's God's giving us sovereign, uh, sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. In other words, God works deep in the human heart to transform the springs of joy so that we love God more than sex or anything else, referencing specifically 
Augustine and his travail with this, this particular sin. He says, loving God in Augustine's mind is never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower. He never makes the mistake of quoting John 4.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and claiming that love is the same thing as keeping Christ's commandments when the text says that keeping Christ's commandments results from loving Christ. You see the little subtle difference there? The reason we keep his commandments is because we love Christ and we have been loved by Christ and we have received the love of Christ and therefore we want to keep his commandments. We don't, we don't equate keeping his commandments with this is how I love. If, that, if you stay in that place in your walk with God, you will have a very duty-driven, duty-bound, potentially descending into legalistic ways of thinking about your walk with Christ and it will diminish your joy. Because you and I have a very big problem. We do not have enough willpower to walk consistently faithfully with Christ. It's not there. It does not reside in us. You and I will be continually frustrated in our walk with God if we stay there. He says, this is Piper again. He says, uh, if, you love, if you love, then me you will obey, is the way he rephrases it. Nor does Augustine make the mistake of quoting 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, and overlook the point that loving God means keeping his commandments in such a way that his commandments are not burdensome. Loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that he is for us that his commandments cease to be burdensome. Augustine saw this, and we need him badly today to help us recover the root of all Christian living in the triumphant joy in God that dethrones the sovereignty of laziness and lust and greed. So this is where we're going to go. I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I got a lot more to go, but... But this is, the, this is sort of just the tip of the iceberg. This is, this, is, this is the tip of Augustine's thinking on salvation. And he was a complete radical in this area. You can imagine now that the Catholic Church had developed into a very uh, sort of imperial type rules and regulations, clerical authority driven kind of institution where sacraments and, and excommunications and and you know, taking baptism and taking communion for good standing in the church and all these different outward acts were what defined for most people what Christianity was all about. And here you have this bishop, actual bishop in the church, who's talking about a love and a passion for Christ that has nothing to do on its face or as a prima facie understanding of things it has nothing to do with willpower or just duty-driven, duty-bound living. Radical, radical stuff then, but even still, it's radical for us today. Remember what I've said before. Legalism is our normal, natural course of life. We want rules because we want to be able to check the box that says, look what I did. Look how good I am at following these rules. Yay, me. That's at the heart of everyone. That's what Jesus came to rebuke and save people from, right? Why on earth would the Father choose to send the Son at such a time as He did in the heart of Phariseeism, if not to expose that as the core weakness of man and his flesh? And so you have Augustine 
going right at this as well, but doing it in really profound and insightful ways. So I'm excited, as you can tell, about this whole doctrine because it is so, it is so refreshing and liberating, and hopefully it will stir in us renewed passion, not for the things of the Lord as a first and foremost objective, but of the Lord himself that then translates into our joy in the things of the Lord. Just that little shift in perspective means it makes all the difference. Any thoughts or questions before we close in prayer and make our way to worship? Sorry, I just kind of did a fire hose on you. All right, let's pray.